Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. Each episode of our series features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting the fruits of his philosophical research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. R. Edward Hauser, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the Center for Thomistic Studies, giving a paper entitled The Metaphysics of Aquinas and Avicenna. I've changed the title a little bit, a little bit more controversial. The title now is Metaphysics, Aquinas, the Avicennian. Uh, there are two reasons I want to speak about Thomas's uh, prologue, which is this is just a reading of the prologue. Uh, to his commentary on uh, Aristotle's metaphysics. The first is textual. It's been said uh, that the decrease in references to Avicenna in his later works, especially the Summa Theology, indicates Avicennian influence on his thought waned over time. I don't think that's true. The second reason is historical, which I think is more important. In 1269, the Paris theologian Gerard of Abbeville renewed the attack on the mendicants and was countered by both Thomas and Bonaventure. At the under, other end of the spectrum, radical Aristotelians and arts, especially Sidra Brabant, supported a more literal interpretation of Aristotle, even if it seemed to disagree with Christian teaching. In 1270, Bishop Etienne Tampier condemned 13 propositions, at least three clearly aimed at supporters of Avicenna and Averroes. And in that same year, remember Thomas is in his second Parisian regency during this time, Thomas disputed the question de unitate intellectus Contra Averroistas, like Siger. And in 1273, after Thomas had left, Bonaventure's Collationes and Hexameron were more critical of Aristotle than his earlier work. This controversy, I think, set the context for Thomas's commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. So I have chosen the prologue as a test case, since here Thomas names neither Avicenna nor Averroes, only the philosopher, but only once. Now, for the sake of clarity, let me state my conclusion, general conclusion first. Far from turning away from his earlier Avicennian understanding of metaphysics, his prologue shows that Thomas's own metaphysics was still thoroughly Avicennian. Part one, metaphysics and the other sciences. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with Aquinas, go over to Avicenna, and then come back to Aquinas, because basically this is a comparison of certain texts in Avicenna and Aquinas, which I argue Aquinas are so close that it's clear that Aquinas knew them, used them, and endorsed them. Um, the ancient commentaries on Aristotle had begun with a prologue offering a first view of the whole, called a skopos, after the scout who precedes an army to scope out, as it were, the enemy. Thomas's prologue has two parts. First, to situate metaphysics in relation to the other sciences. It's quite normal for Thomas and everybody else who writes these prologues, and second, to set out the parts of this science, its subject genus, objects of inquiry and proof, of inquiry and proof, and end, though, as usual, his prologues leave off the principles of this particular science. Uh, that's not just for this particular um, uh, prologue. Um, I'm at, uh, if you have the thing, I'm at the first text. Uh, Thomas opens by citing Aristotle, not his metaphysics, but his politics on final causality of all things. Now, human action is circular. We act for an end considered good, which bestows benefits when achieved. 
The politics concerns the acts of communities, where many agents work for one common good, a family, clan, or polis. The common end requires a hierarchy among those agents, illustrated by two telling analogies. This is what Thomas says. When many things are ordered to one thing, it is necessary that one of them be the regulator or ruler and the others regulated or ruled. Now this is clear from the union of soul and body. Practical actions require both, but soul and body are not equal. The soul must command and the body must obey. A second example. Something similar is true among the powers of the soul, for the irascible and concupiscible powers by nature are ruled by reason. By nature is important. These three powers work together, but only under the rule of reason. All three order to one common end that is higher than any one of them, and that end is good human action. To apply this analogy to the sciences, we should remember that Greek teachers in Alexandria and Athens used Aristotle's sciences as an introduction to Plato's dialogues. So the commentators, the Greek commentators, arranged the sciences in a linear pedagogical order. Logic, mathematics, the physical sciences, the moral sciences, culminating in metaphysics, which looked in two directions back over the lower sciences and upward towards the sublime thought of Platonism and place metaphysics within this hierarchy. So Thomas says, this is the second text, now all the sciences and the arts are ordered to one thing, namely the perfection of the human, which is happiness. Consequently, it is necessary that one of them be the ruler of all the others and this one rightly deserves the name of wisdom, for it is the duty of the wise person to order the others. All the sciences fall under one end, which we might expect to be the proper end of metaphysics, which Thomas later says is knowing God and the intelligence, intelligences. But that's not what he says. When taken together, the sciences require an even higher, all-encompassing end, the perfection of the human, clarified as happiness, that's beatitudo. Our ultimate end set for human nature itself. Each science pursues knowledge of its own subject while also contributing in its own way to this one common end, which is higher than all the sciences and lies beyond the limits of every human science, and that's happiness. But if so, there must be one highest science analogous to the rational soul, which rules the other sciences. Now, Brother Thomas was perfectly capable of inventing out of his own mind this crucial claim, but he didn't do so. It is a close paraphrase of a passage from the Introduction to Metaphysics with which Avicenna began his own Metaphysics of the Healing, Book 1, Chapters 1 through 3. In explaining uh, how useful metaphysics is, Avicenna had given uh, two definitions. The useful is the cause that in itself leads to the good, while the harmful leads to evil. Then Avicenna had turned to the sciences. So Avicenna says, you know, he told his reader, this is a direct quote, all the sciences have in common one utility, namely acquiring the perfection of the human soul in actuality which prepares it for future felicity. Sound familiar? Yeah, I just read something that's almost the same thing. 
This sentence is the source of Thomas's. Both begin with all the sciences, proceed to their common end, one which surpasses all the sciences, is defined as the perfection of the human, and is named happiness. That's pretty close parallelism, it seems to me. To be sure, Thomas makes minor changes, but the fundamental doctrine and even the language, if you get, go to the Latin, I'm, I'm dealing with the Latin text in both cases, all right, are the, are the same. There's one in the perfection of human. Now, Avicenna had uh, called this the perfection of the human soul. That's a difference. Which prepares it for future felicity because the Muslim philosophers had rejected the two corporeal view of heaven found in the Quran, with all apologies, all right, uh, in favor of a purely spiritual heavenly life. Thomas emends it to Beatitudo. Why? Because his doctrine of the twofold beatitude covers both the happiness of the wayfarer and the beatified in a future life. So he's stating the point even more uh, uh, succinctly. So this is my claim here about the, this similarity. It's more than a similarity. We see here a deep convergence of mind between Avicenna and Thomas, so different from Aristotle's imperfect and purely earthly happiness. Theirs is a metaphysics which, from its very beginning, has two primary functions. First, it looks upward, pointing beyond itself to a higher end, fully attainable only in patria, beyond the slings and out arrows of outrageous fortune. This common and highest end happiness to which all the sciences are directed is the first point Thomas takes from Avicenna. That's my claim. Second, like Avicenna, Thomas places metaphysics between the lower philosophical sciences, which it rules, and the higher, uh, and the higher knowledges of sacred doctrine and perfected heavenly beatitude, uh, beatitude to which metaphysics leads. Placing metaphysics at this midpoint between the lower sciences and the higher states of knowledge and happiness is the second point Thomas takes from Avicenna. Defining wisdom. Now, if there is a science which rules and is wisdom, which one is it and how does it rule? We might presume that this is metaphysics, but presumption is uh, not knowledge. So Thomas rounds out the first half of his prologue by answering these questions and says, likewise, that science by its nature that is based upon the kinds of things it studies ought to be the ruler of the others. What, what science? Which is intellectual to the maximum degree, and this science is the one that treats things intelligible to the max, uh, maximum degree. Now, this formula Thomas will use in the second half of his prologue to uncover the parts of the science of metaphysics, its subject, genus, objects of inquiry and proof, and its end, for only then can we understand why metaphysics, rather than, say, po uh, politics, uh, rules. Now, Thomas did not originate this formula. Uh, Aristotle had, uh, but in his commentary on this book, Aristotle's Metaphysics, Thomas did come up with a very succinct formula. Maximal knowledge is about things maximally known, which is kind of nice, you know? It's very succinct, all right? Um, so uh, the formulations uh, of Aristotle, Avicenna, and Thomas uh, differ. Uh, but uh, the doctrine is fundamentally uh, the same. Now we're going to turn to Avicenna on the subject of metaphysics. 
Avicenna had introduced metaphysics dialectically to his students. He's always addressing the reader, his reader, all right, you, all right, um, recalling three different names and descriptions of metaphysics his reader had encountered in the lower sciences. So this is Avicenna. You, my reader, have heard it is the most certain philosophy and first philosophy, which makes us acquire verification of the scientific in, uh, principles of the other sciences. Second, it is most certainly wisdom, described as the more excellent science than others for knowing that which is more excellent, the more excellent object of knowledge. And third, under the name divine science, he said it studies things separate from matter, especially the cause of causes and principle of principles, God be exalted, making it the science of the first causes of the whole of reality. These are a set of quotations from the very beginning as he is reminding uh, the reader, these are things you learned in the lower sciences, but you really don't understand them fully because you haven't done uh, metaphysics yet. Okay? So, Avicenna promised his reader at this point, we will make it clear that the three attributes used to describe wisdom are properties of one magisterial teaching. My comment, it was Avicenna then who led Thomas to divide the formula, the maximally intellectual science study as the maximally intelligible objects into three senses. This is the third point that he takes from Avicenna. I see somebody over there is, uh, uh, a skeptical Dominican, but you know, we have to keep going, all right? Um, now, Avicenna's immediate task was to determine the subject of uh, metaphysics. So he listed three candidates. Is that subject God the exalted, or the first causes, or being as being? Now, Avicenna focused on eliminating two of those so it's no accident that Thomas will consider the same three options for the subject of metaphysics in the prologue. This is the fourth point he takes from Avicenna. But Thomas will concentrate on finding some place for each opt option within the parts of metaphysics, being a little bit more broad-minded, uh, its subject, objects of inquiry, and end. Okay. Avicenna's first option was God. God cannot be the subject of metaphysics first because no science proves the existence of its own object. The second reason, however, is I think for us very interesting, all right? It's based on the fact that there are only three alternatives for knowing God's existence. Either it is self-evident, the term in Latin is per se notum, you've heard that, or something one despairs of proving by any reasoning, or there is proof of it. The first two disjuncts are false, because we have signs or in Arabic, it's possible to prove it, but only in this science. Now this disjunctive argument struck Thomas, uh, I hope you're all thinking of a particular text of Thomas that you've probably read, as so important that he would adopt it as the first step of his own argument for God's existence. That's Summa of Theology, part one, question two, article one. Straight out of this quotation from Avicenna. Uh, Avicenna's second uh, candidate for the subject of uh, metaphysics is the ultimate causes, uh, which he says, all four of them, not just one, following the, th the thought of certain thinkers, and here he's referring to the so-called theology of Aristotle, an Arabic co uh, uh, compilation of texts from Plotinus, 
but he rejects that too because the ultimate causes are not the subject of metaphysics, but they're something that metaphysics tries to understand, or in Avicenna's uh, terminology, its perfection and aim. The third and true subject of metaphysics is being as being, but I hate to tell you this, Aristotle had misunderstood his own formula. Avicenna thought, by limiting metaphysics to studying but one kind of being, substance, okay, um, that was a mistake. So Avicenna turned to its scope, the very thing he tells us in his autobiography he learned from reading Al-Farabi's little book, after reading Aristotle's metaphysics 40 times, he didn't still understand the sort of overall configuration. Being as being, Avicenna said, must be the subject of this magisterial teaching. This is a direct quote, because, this is, I love this, because only it is common to all these things. That's his word in Latin, commune, as required of a universal science. And there is no need for inquiry to establish either the existence or quiddity of common being, because, as Avicenna says later, it is one of the three primordial notions. Now, we're familiar with the term for the subject of metaphysics, ens commune. I've just shown you the text in Avicenna that inspired Aquinas to come up with his own description of the subject of metaphysics, ends, commune, put together from Avicenna, create ends commune, a description of the subject of metaphysics. Uh, search in uh, one of those things online and see if you can find how many uh, earlier um, medieval philosophers use uh, the, uh, the phrase ends commune. It's an interesting task. All right. I'll just leave it for you. Um, now, I'm looking at the clock. We have seen that Thomas used Avicenna's treatment of the utility of metaphysics to show that all the sciences are aimed at attaining the supreme end of happiness. All right. Uh, but then he distinguished two ways a particular science can be useful. A lower science is useful to the higher science of metaphysics when it helps uh, it function by, and this is a quote from Avicenna, making evident many things assumed in metaphysics, such as generation, corruption, change, place, and time. So you go through, you learn about these things, and they provide, uh, you could say, materials for the metaphysician. If the met metaphysician just sort of jumps into metaphysics, well, uh, he doesn't, uh, hasn't looked at those, uh, uh, at, those, uh, at those features of the natural world, okay? But a higher science is also useful to a low, lower by, this is Avicenna, uh, another quote, I have T10, but I might have changed up my, uh, my numbering, though. so it's ten or 9 or 10. Providing certainty for the principles of the particular sciences and also certainty about those things that are quiddities common to the sciences. Now this is the usefulness of the ruler to the ruled. Here Avicenna made precise Aristotle's vague notion of metaphysics ruling when Aristotle says it, it's in the first book of his Metaphysics. The only principles Aristotle had defended in Metaphysics Gamma or 4 um, were the common axioms 
of non-contradiction the excluded middle, but Avicenna did much more. The lower sciences cannot ensure certainty for their own proper principles and fundamental quidditative notions because they assume them. So what is necessary? Metaphysics should provide the certainty with which we can know the fundamental principles and the fundamental sort of notions uh, that are absolutely necessary to know in pursuing the lower sciences. That's the sense of uh, ruling uh, that is uh, operative uh, here. Um, and uh, Avicenna then uh, divides these objects of inquiry into what he calls quasi-species of being, such as substance, quantity, and quality, uh, and also quasi-proper accidents of being, uh, the one and the many, the potential and the actual, guess who uses that in his prologue to the commentary on the sentences? I think we know. Um, and uh, the universal and the particular. In other words, Avicenna is here laying out the whole first part of his metaphysics, and we're going to see Thomas uh, follow that as well in what he says uh, in the uh, prologue. All right, now you're wondering when I'm going to get to Aquinas, so. Uh, skipping a little bit, I'm going to get to, uh, uh, I mean, uh, get to Thomas right now. Now, having looked at Avicenna, we are now in a position to see how in the second half of his prologue, this little bitty prologue, but there's a whole lot in it, okay? Thomas introduces Aristotle's metaphysics with a short, precise, and thoroughly Avicennian, seems to me, roadmap, distinguishing three senses of those maximally intelligible objects, corresponding to the three scientific parts of metaphysics, subject, object of inquiry, and end. Never talks about the principles. And he clarifies Avicenna by prefacing each sense by adding the basis for his analysis. So the only difference is Thomas, always the astute reader, tells us the basis for what he's going to say, as well as what? Agreeing with Avicenna. Metaphysics is the ruler. Like Avicenna, Brother Thomas does not begin with the subject of metaphysics, but with conclusions. It can deduce. The first sense of maximally intelligible objects, he says, comes from the order of intellectual knowing, the basis for his analysis in these like three or four sentences. For the intellect attains certainty from those things that are seen to be more intelligible. Now, certainty in a science is acquired through intellectual knowledge from very important word, from causes. So we somewhere must acquire knowledge of causes. For they give us the reason why things are as they are and events happen as they do. But demonstrative knowledge in the lower sciences, which use proximate causes or effects as middle terms, presupposes we already have certain knowledge of their fundamental nature, which comes first conceptually, I didn't say uh, chronologically, and why Thomas here calls them first causes. So it is metaphysics that must provide us with certain knowledge of the nature of the causes. Now we don't get this first. This is uh, a conceptual priority, not a chronological priority. But they cannot be the subject of metaphysics because metaphysics studies much more than the causes and metaphysics cannot just assume their nature. If it did, it would undermine all the certainty of all scientific knowledge and there you have modern philosophy, in case you're wondering, okay? This is why for Thomas, like Avicenna, knowing the causes conceptually is an object of inquiry and proof. So Thomas concludes, 
That science which considers the first causes is seen to be the ruler of the others to a maximum degree. That metaphysics rules the lower sciences by using conclusions proven in metaphysics to verify the principles of the lower sciences then is the eighth point Thomas takes from Avicenna. Now, how about metaphysics as a universal science? Thomas next turns to the second sense of maximally intelligible objects, which reveals the subject of uh, metaphysics, and also more about the objects of inquiry. Again, he begins with the basis for his analysis. The second sense comes from comparing intellect with sense. Since sense knowledge is cognition of particulars, we see the, that intellectual knowing differs from sensation in this way that it takes in universals. That should be T13 on your uh, handout. So the maximally intellectual science must concern principles that are max maximally universal, that is, the most common features of reality and the most universal concepts of them. Then Thomas condenses Avicenna's longer message. So this is a direct quote from Thomas. These are being and those things that follow on being, such as one and many and potency and act. Being is the most common or universal notion, which is why Thomas follows Avicenna in construing being as being as common being, Thomas's uh, phrase. It is the subject of metaphysics because one and many and other such universal notions, as well as all the lesser ones, presuppose being. For example, one means one being, and potency means a potential being. This is why such transcendental notions of being are like the properties of being and so must be objects of inquiry and proof in metaphysics. And if metaphysics can't do it, then all the lower sciences are left with what? Probabilities, not uh, certainties. Um, Thomas uh, then goes on to the objects of inquiry and proof, uh, but I'm going to skip to the end of metaphysics because I think um, we need to leave a little bit of time for um, uh, questions. Uh, so this is the third. So there are these three senses of the most intellectual science studies the most intelligible things, okay, that Thomas distinguishes, all right? Um, we have seen Avicenna say that God is not the subject of metaphysics but is in, so we are not surprised to see Brother Thomas draw the same conclusion in considering the third sense of maximally intelligent science. Again, the basis for his analysis is intellectual knowledge, but this time his reasoning moves from such knowledge, it's the opposite direction from the first one, from the knowledge to the objects rather than from the objects to the knowledge. Okay. Intellectual cognition must be separate from matter. Why? Because it's universal. For universal knowledge is possible only if the intellect and also its act of knowing are separate from matter. Since matter, not form, is what causes material things to be individual rather than universal. Now maximally intellectual knowledge must be correlative with the kinds of things that are maximally intelligible. I'm sorry if I keep coming back to this, but it's such a nice little formula so if universal knowledge must be separate from matter, then the highest things known must be separate from matter as well. Correlation. Spiritual intellect, spiritual things, all right? Now, um, 
to uh, support this conclusion, what Thomas does is uh, walk up the three levels of objects known in the three levels of the theoretical sciences, where we have in natural philosophy, the natural forms of physical things uh, known or abstracted from their uh, designated matter. Then in the mathematical sciences, the objects are more abstract because the substance of a thing is left behind. Only certain accidental features of real things remain in the mind of the mathematician. Held together by intelligible matter, which provides a conceptual subject for mathematical objects. This is the difference between a rectangular piece of parchment and a rectangle. The maximally intelligible objects considered in metaphysics, by contrast, he says, are abstract not just in nature, secundum like mathematical objects, but also in existence, secundum esse, such as God and the intelligences. They are not abstracted from matter, but must be fully separate from it, both in their essence and their existence. And here, for the first and only time in the prologue, Thomas makes his point using the twin metaphysical principles of quiddity and existence, which he took from Avicenna and made his own. He does so because of the very nature of God and the intelligences to exist separately from matter. This third sense of the maximally intelligible objects does not describe the subject of metaphysics, though some Aristotelians over the centuries have thought so, it describes its ultimate objects of inquiry and proof, which exist separately from matter, and therefore its end. This end of metaphysics is the 11th point Thomas draws from Avicenna. Now, at this point, and only at this point, see, because Thomas has argued for these uh, conclusions, um, Avicenna, in his metaphysics, just sort of laid them out in a gentle way so his be reader's beginning metaphysics could understand them. Um, so uh, it's at this point that he draws his conclusions, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to draw my conclusions. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas wrote his prologue in such a way as to inform the discerning reader, then and now, that when one looks to the great commentators on Aristotle, it is not Averroes or the Greek commentators or even his teacher Albert, who had been long at work writing his own Aristotelian style works, to whom one should turn. Thomas read the ancient authors and interpreted them with but one thought in mind. This is how to read his commentaries on uh, Aristotle, I think. To discover truth in such works. With this goal, he here lets his reader know from the outset that in writing his own ad literam commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics in the style of Averroes, he will offer an interpretation that is not at all Averroistic, nor literally Aristotelian. It is Avicennia. The influence of religion on philosophy, for which Averroes so attacked Avicenna, was for St. Thomas an inducement to side with Avicenna. And this is why Thomas chose to model his introduction to his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, that's the prologue that I'm talking about, on Avicenna's introduction for his readers 
in his Metaphysics of the Healing, Book 1, Chapters 1 and 3. So all I've given you is the best I can do of a comparison and close reading of this little prologue with the first three chapters of Avicenna's Metaphysics, remembering he was very determined. You have to go through the cursus, logic, all right, mathematics, the physical sciences, the moral sciences, and only then do you get to metaphysics. Uh, so now I'm going to go, sort of go out on a little, well, I love going out on limbs anyway. To understand Thomas's prologue then, one really must read it in light of those opening chapters of Avicenna. In doing so, we have as our model Thomas himself, who refused, I, I emphasize it, who refused to separate philosophy from its own history. All you have to do is read any sample article from the Summa or other things and see in dealing with any major issue, what does he always do? He starts with what he knows of the history of uh, prior philosophers. For whoever does not hear Thomas himself, and I'm saying you have to know a little Avicenna to understand that, cannot learn from him. So let us avoid, I would suggest, being like the philologists, Nietzsche excoriated, who dig up the bones that they themselves have laid down. And that's it. 